0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Alt Reports Radio, where we talk with folks about investing in alternative assets outside of the 60-40 stocks and bonds portfolio. Today, I'm on here with Anar Volsit and Anar, we've known each other for a long time. I know exactly what you do over there, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to ask you to just tell us a little bit about about your businesses. And I think you've got two going right now. And one of them I, I want to dig into, but to correct me, maybe there's more that I don't know about. As,
1: as of right now, yeah, there's only, oh, quote unquote only two. And you <clears throat> I like to say that I have the, yeah, I have the most hated title, both on the East coast and the West coast. I'm a okay. venture capitalist and an investment oh. banker. It's the worst of all worlds. Good no, we're focused
0: on B2B SaaS. Sorry. What I said, your kind is good around here.
1: We accept it. <laughs> there you go. Mm-hmm. No, we focus on B two B SaaS on the investment banking
0: side. I founded uh, Discretion Capital, which does back up one second B two B SaaS. SaaS software yeah. as a service, and that so that means that you've got to fund your you're investing solely into businesses that are building software as a service businesses for. So support. these are
1: these are like your boring like. You go to work. You have to use some software in order to achieve your job. That's what we. That's what we deal with, basically. Effectively, on the MA side, our job is to sell those businesses. We typically represent businesses between two and ten million ARR. ARR being annual recurring revenue. This is one of the key features of B two B SaaS is the sort of recurring revenue subscription basis. Um, and on the and, and then on the investor side uh I'm part general partner at TinySeed which is uh basically a, a super early stage uh venture fund that invests in those kind of companies at the earliest stages and we're uh we're in to fund uh I guess 3 now and wow. uh I think by the time this time comes out we will have invested in more than 100 companies from that fund wow um and we invest very early there we invested like you know as early as 500 a month in recurring revenue so so kind of truly the earliest stage and and really the difference between our thesis and like your standard silicon valley vc is we've tried to design the uh investment structure in such a way that the the investors and us uh, and the founders will all succeed if you know there's an exit in the 20 million 50 million 100 million dollar exit instead of your typical VC, which the only goal is to IPO and become a billion-dollar unicorn or decacorn or whatever. Um, so that's kind of the, the key difference. And, and, and effectively, what we believe is that there are many more you know $100 million exits than there are billion-dollar exits or indeed $10 billion exits.
0: So in the mar- kind of market that we're in right now, where NASDAQ and a lot of the tech stocks on there... Just getting crushed. How are these kinds of investments, any, any different from that? Other than that, they're, they're early stage.
1: Well, I mean, being, being early stage certainly helps uh, in, in many ways. I think we're seeing on the M and A side and and certainly on the fundraising side too, that, you know, the closer you are to the public markets, the, the harder you and earlier, you're getting crushed in terms of comparisons to the public multiples. Um, the interesting thing about SaaS, really is like. It, it doesn't have the, even in like a recessionary environment, which, you know, arguably we're in people don't cancel their business software. They still kind of have to, to use it. I'm actually working on a, on a piece right now that's sort of analysis of the impacts of, of the recession and, uh, how that's gonna impact both our own portfolio, but also starting to look at some of the more public SaaS companies just to compare SaaS, B2B SaaS in general to more consumer facing products, whether that's software or media or whatever. From what I'm seeing, just sort of anecdotally, but also, and and who knows how long the current environment's going to last, but currently we're actually not seeing that huge an impact in terms of growth. Um, there was, I think around May, June timeframe, there was a, you know, I, I think across the board, a a jump in churn, so an increase in, in cancellations basically, but, um. I suspect from talking to founders that a lot of that was basically customers like actively looking at their subscriptions and being like, what are we actually using? So at, at any given point, because it's sort of a recurring software business, like you you subscribe to it and you put your credit card in or whatever, and then you're, you're getting billed every month. There's a certain percentage of your customers most of the time that um, basically aren't using your software very much. Mm-hmm. And, coming into like when the Nasdaq's down 30% and everyone's talking about recessions and interest rates are up people start worrying companies start worrying much more about what should we cut what can we what can we cut now and I certainly certainly think we saw a bump of that churn um, in, in sort of the May June time frame um, but in many ways I think that's stuff that would have churned out anyway like over the next six to 12 months is just that you know, it focused everyone's mind over the summer that we need to be a little bit more prudent with cash going forward. Um, so although it's soon, and I I probably won't come out with this until the new year, you know, maybe late next year is to look at like, you know, what is the impact, what is the resiliency of those kind of revenue streams compared to, you know, something more consumer facing. I certainly think you're much more likely to see uh, a direct impact in in, in other businesses than mm-hmm. you are in sort of b2b SaaS, it's much more of like the plumbing of business as they were
0: so in software in general there's been sort of this uh, like growth at any cost kind of theme and we're worried about profitability later tell me how you think about yeah. profitability for um for the folks in your uh, what do you call them would, would you call it a Uh, you just call it in your fund. Uh, is it a ment? It's a mentorship program as well as there is, is, yeah. So we
1: run it. I mean, we call it our portfolio. Like we basically run accelerator batches, like a year long accelerator, um, for, for our, uh, fully remote for our portfolio companies. And so we do two of those every year. One, you know, Europe-based one, North America-based we focused on B2B SaaS mostly because um part of the thesis around how we invest is that we don't really want a lot of dilution so we believe that most of these B2B SaaS companies if you look at I mean some of my private equity friends who, who work in more traditional businesses don't believe me when I say this but they can have you know 90 95 percent gross margins at scale once they get past a million or two and it, and it's not unusual for a business that's doing more than a million or two in in ARR Uh, to have free cash flows of 35 40 maybe even 50 percent and so and in fact I think you see that reflected in some of the more well-known public B2B SaaS companies as well so for example the example I like to give is Zoom which everyone knows they actually when they when they IPO they had uh, more cash in the bank than they'd raised before going public and it speaks to the capital that. efficiency of those, of those type of businesses. Yeah, and there, there are many of them who are like that. Like Slack actually is another example where I don't know if they quite had that much cash, but it was sort of in on the order of that. Um, and so in terms of profitability, like th- the goal for us when we run our accelerators, which run 12 months is it's not the traditional, you know, do it for three months, then try to raise as much money as possible at as high evaluation as possible, which is your YCE or your, your tech stars. For us, it's like we want them to be default alive, and so that they can get to a, a, a revenue range where they have all their optionality. They could go raise some money, but it's enough to pay salaries. They covers expenses. It's basically break even at that point. And and you know if they have, you know, reason to believe that more capital would would be beneficial in terms of growing faster or the opportunities larger, then they go out and raise money. And if but if not, they don't do that. And so. I think unusually in our portfolio, we're seeing like 30 ish percent of companies raising some kind of of financing after us Okay. Um, versus like if you were a traditional venture fund, that would be disastrous because that would mean that 70% of your portfolio was basically dead Mm. versus for us of this, even of the successful ones, a lot of them don't raise any more money because they don't need to. Mm. Um, And so they choose not to. And so you, you as an investor, you know, instead of being in a position where, okay, you invest at the pre-seed seed stage, maybe you own 10% then by the time, you know, at IPOs, you own 0.25% because they've gone through all the letters in the venture, you know, series financing alphabet, you still maybe own six, seven, eight, nine, maybe even 10% uh, in an exit event or a liquidity event. Um, and then also like, particularly now, and I mean, who knows what's gonna happen with the new interest rate regime, but certainly, uh, in the B2B SaaS world, there are now many more sort of uh, financing uh, avail- uh, things available to you. So like things like revenue based financing, you're
0: um, talking about of, like non-dilutive
1: finance. means, as opposed yeah, to getting... debt financing, basically. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, so that doesn't dilute you, but you can do things like using pipe where because there's such predictable uh, revenue streams, you can say, okay, I'm be- getting paid, I don't know, $10,000 a month, but um, you can use something like pipe or, you know, Lighter capital whatever to say, okay, I want to get basically borrow 12 months from that revenue stream. Um, so, so if you have something very specific in terms of like, here's a, here's a paid acquisition channel that works, um, something like that, you can pull that revenue forward without further diluting your cap table.
0: Hmm. So talk to me a little bit about, uh, other than the, that they're in B2B SaaS and they're, you know, 500, uh, MRR, which is uh, monthly recurring revenue or better. What are some of the other filters that you apply when you're looking at, I, I assume you're looking at, if you've got a hundred, you must be looking at maybe many hundreds or thousands of companies to invest in. Yeah. Yeah. We probably look at four or 500 companies a year, um,
1: okay. to, to make our determination. It, it really depends. So, um, one of the sort of alpha and omegas when it comes to these kind of businesses is churn rate. So, like, you know, do you have the kind of because again, this depends on specifically whether you're what's called a vertical or horizontal software. So, what is your churn rate? Like, when do people cancel? How often do people cancel this software? And and what you really want ideally is is something that's super sticky, where you know you bring a customer in. Maybe they only pay you, I don't know, 50, hundred bucks, 250 bucks a month, but they're, they're sort of a core operational part of your business. So you're not going to cancel them. So you just stay with them for for years and years. And so we definitely do look at that, even at the earliest stages. And you know, 500 is pretty low for us. Sort of the sweet spot, it's more like three, 4,000 up to maybe 15, 20. Okay. And that gives us like, once you're into that revenue range, that gives us enough data that we can look at like, what is the churn rate? for this for this product. Like are people sticking around? And we find that particularly for a vertically integrated SaaS, so this would be software used to run a car dealership or a dental software, dental dental company or or something like that. They, it should be pretty sticky. Like it might, when people, it might be a kind of a long sales cycle in some cases, just to get it, convince them that they should stop using pencil and paper or Excel or whatever, sure. but once they're starting using it, it's a key part of their stuff. And so they, they pretty much don't churn in some cases that's slightly different for depending on what you're doing. So, you know, like if you're selling SaaS software to e-commerce uh, merchants, for example, you're gonna have a higher level of churn just because turns out there's a lot of people in this world who think they're going to become billionaires you know selling random crap on Shopify sure. and so they'll start a drop shipping site selling something from Alibaba and then three months later they realize they're losing money so they shut it down and there's really nothing as a software vendor to that merchant that you could do to, to not churn because they're, they're basically shutting their business down um so so we do take that into account but Certainly, that's one of the biggest red flags for us. It's like if if the churn is significantly higher than you would expect, given the segment that are in, the kind of software
0: it is. All right. So talk to me a little bit about like how folks invest with you. And I know I don't think you've got a round that you're raising right now, but what types of like how many investors do you have? What types of people are good investors uh, for tiny seed, what are they looking for? Like, what are they expecting, um, you know, in the long run and kind of walk me through how people think about investing in this stuff.
1: Sure. I mean, our, our goal is still to like, to come in and be, you know, a top quarter that have performance of a top quartile venture fund, What's venture funds themselves are actually very similar to, startups in themselves and that there is a, there's a very big variation between like, I, I think actually the act, the, the average venture fund loses money. So, so you get less money back than you put in top quartile performance probably puts you into a three X range versus okay. like top 10%, all of a sudden you're talking 20 times your money back. Um, and, and so very much our goal is to go after that kind of, of return because, you know, we're investing in early stage software businesses. These are, you know, high risk, uh, hopefully high reward investments. And so we're not a debt fund. Uh, There's no like guaranteed redemptions. There's no cash flows that's going to start coming after a certain amount of time. It's more like you're putting the money in and you're sort of hoping slash expecting that you get three, five, ten times your money back five, six, seven, eight, nine years from now. So most of our investors at the moment, we're we're a reasonably small fund. I think we have 50, 60 million AUM, something like that. Um, Most of our funds is like 10 to 25, $30 million range. And most of our investors actually are sort of high net worth individuals and and family offices rather than, you know, most of the big VCs, like your Andreessen Horvitz, your Sequoia Capital, they're getting their money from pension funds and big university endowments. funny story i was actually at a, at a lpgp so lp would be limited partner uh conference in new york a couple of weeks ago and they were like i was talking to the guy from um uh, i think it was new york state pension fund and he was like yeah our minimum check size is 250 million dollars so i was like that's great can you just <laughs> chop it in 10 and give me one piece of that like you know let's just get that done sure um so so most of our most of our investors are that we actually have a lot of our investors probably more than 50 percent are sort of been there done that operators so they're like they bootstrapped oh, okay. started their own software business you know they sold it to private equity now they have a bunch of cash and like they're like well i don't want to put all my money in real estate even though that seems what everyone's doing like i, I want to you know give back to that community and invest in something i understand and we we like that just because obviously their, their money is as green as anyone else's but also they have their own know they have their own networks and they have their own advice that we very much rely on in terms of you know hooking up the founders that we back with with those kinds of advice and those kinds of mentors so so that's been working out really well um but yeah like in terms of just mechanics like we're a pretty standard vc fund that means two and 20 basically so we take two percent on average two percent of of uh, funds under management and fees that goes to pay you know salaries or accelerator you know that's the programming for the founders and then, uh, after sort of a one X liquidation, hurdle, we, a return hurdle, we, uh, we take 20% of, of profit on top of that.
0: Okay. And I assume we, you know, we're talking about having to build companies and exit from them. I assume we've got a lockup or a hold period. That's pretty long. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The funds themselves are like, you know, 10 years long with, you know, I think one or two years of extension built in there, um, you know, because we're backing such early stage companies, like you don't really want them. Like if you start getting distributions in year one or two or three, chances are things are not going well because these businesses, most of the time in year two are just not big enough to have any kind of meaningful outcome. Um, so, so what I tell in potential investors is like, you really, really shouldn't expect any kind of money back whatsoever until like year five or six, um, just because, you know, that's the that's the kind of time frame it takes to build these businesses up to a size where you know you're getting into 2 million, 5 million, 10 million in revenue where it makes sense to start to sell them like whether to private equity or to, to more strategic buyers out there. Um so so certainly like if you're if you're looking if you're an investor who's looking for more dependable, you know, cash flows, you know, that sort of thing, we're not for you. Um you know, you should probably more look at it like a, a revenue-based financing debt fund or something like that. We're very much more the longer term like we actually legally can't give you redemption rights so we rely on a, uh, the vc exemption with the sec and if um if we were to to guarantee you say okay after two years you can get your money back or cash out or whatever we would lose that exemption and, and actually uh, probably have the sec breathing down our necks um so it's a very it's a highly illiquid, highly risky investment basically uh, but hopefully not quite as risky as your average VC fund uh, because of the strategy.
0: Right. So I assume then, now that we've you've said the word SEC, I, I assume well, let's talk about who's qualified. Is it an, an accredited investor and above investment with you guys?
1: Yeah, pretty much. Um, so we looked at a couple of different you know mechanics uh, to let you know retail investors come in, but it's almost impossible to do so just because the current regulatory regime uh we're actually randomly working with so our and, and actually like it, one of the challenges is there's like the accredited investor threshold that you need to meet um and actually for us one of the largest issues is uh the SEC has this notion of you can only have 99 investors in any given fund there's like a hard cap that's actually written into the law um and this is problematic because what ends up happening is that, you know, okay, that's fine if you're doing a smallish fund. So then maybe you're collecting fifty thousand dollar checks and it, it works out okay. But if you wanted to scale that to any kind, you know, basically build any kind of an enduring franchise in this world, then you you need to raise slightly larger funds. So that's you know twenty five million or whatever. But then at 99 LPs, the minimum investment becomes two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and so that's a much harder ask. But particularly as a first check from investors, and so. One of the things we have been working on is, and, and honestly, like <laughs> the, the sort of cynic in me looks at this and say, this suits the more traditional existing larger venture funds, you know, down to a T because those guys have all the money anyway, they have the big funds, they have the existing things. And it's that basically is like regulatory capture for them. Like it makes it much harder to like, they'll let us play like, you know, $5 million fund. That sounds fun. You go, you go do that. But once you get into 25 million, hundred million dollar funds, all of a sudden you have to start competing directly with them for the larger checks, even though maybe you have an investment investor base that would be willing to fund a hundred million dollar fund, but you maybe have to take 200 investors, 300 investors to do that. That just isn't possible at the moment. So we're actually working with somebody to try to, to introduce on the, on the Senate floor, uh, an amendment to that rule. And we actually got introduced on the Senate floor back in March or April. So we're hoping to get that, that limit lifted to 500, which would, you know, obviously help us, but also help other more upstart venture investors who maybe doesn't quite look the same or, or, or aren't your typical venture spin-off. So the way venture, and let me just rant about venture spin-offs. Yeah, there's all these stories that come out and it's like, oh, so-and-so raised their first venture fund and they raised $250 million. And you're like, wow, it's like two dudes or two women raised $250 million for their first fund. That's amazing. And then you look and it's like, oh, yeah like they worked at Sequoia for 10 years and so it's a right. spin-off of Sequoia and most of the money is the same money like it's the right. same people doing the same thing it's just whatever yeah. um versus someone really truly start starting from cold to to raise that kind of fund, particularly for a fund one is almost unheard of and, and in part it's because of the way the regulations work so, so that's why you get in recent Horowitz giving Adam Neum- Newman or whatever his name is another 250 million dollars or a billion dollars right. to do his random stuff because that's what they always did like yeah. who cares? Like it's yeah. same money, same type of investors going to the same type of thing. So what would you expect?
0: Right. Yeah. Don't get me started I on the like. SEC. I, I feel pretty strongly about so, a, a, a few of their things. Not the least of which is the asset-based and income-based accreditation. I feel like that doesn't make a lot of sense. And the threshold should be that you're a competent, person who understands the risk that you're taking much more so than, you know, if you've got $999,000, then you're not qualified to invest in something as deep as your expertise or knowledge might be in the vehicle or anything else. And it really seems pretty arbitrary and, and silly at this point, but I'm not sure if anyone's taken that on. I, I th- there, was, there was a push last last year year before to, to
1: update the accreditation rules and and i i fully agree with you i'm like <laughs> just because you have a bunch of money doesn't mean you know what the hell you're doing right um but like and there was a push here last year and they were like a big big thing like oh yeah we changed the are making it more democratic and i looked at it i was like yes yeah, so the changes that got pushed out was pretty much the only difference was you know there was like an uh initially the hearings and and we we contributed to these things were around like you say if you know what you're doing you should be able to you know take the risk with your own money the way you want but what that translated into and very classically middle of the beltway type thing is um yeah if you have a series 7 type exam then you can come in so so basically if you're like a wall street MBA type analyst then and you're going to take your finance exams anyway then you get in and I'm like no (laughs) what the best investors in software aren't the people who are and like second year analysts on wall street. Like what the hell yeah. are you talking about? Yeah. So, so I, I agree with that. I think it's completely insane, but like it's, it's problematic because the way that the, what we're seeing on the, with this bill we're trying to introduce is we're seeing in general, Republicans are for it. And in general, Democrats are like worried about investor protections. Mm. And I'm like, whoa, you're basically stopping people who are, you already made the threshold accredited. So these are people who are already making, you know, tons of money or have tons of money. Right. And you are telling me that like, you shouldn't be able to, you should, you protect those. Those are the people you're protecting from some sort of a scam. It doesn't, it yeah. doesn't make any sense to me. It does, just, don't.
0: yeah, I think a, a silly thing about it there, when we divide it down the, the red, blue party lines there too, and under the guise of protecting us from ourselves is that, um, I don't know if there's anything more risky than being in public markets and you don't need any, you don't need any accreditation. I for mean, that. I look at it
1: like, I was I was hoping we could talk about the Wall Street bets Reddit group here about the craziness that's on there, but it's like, you could, you could buy, you could download Robinhood. You know, and and, yeah. and and YOLO your entire you know life savings into options yeah. on Tesla. I mean, and people do. Yeah. Like in an there was literally like a week ago there was a story. Did you hear this about the guy yeah. who like he inherited a hundred thousand dollars from his father and then lost it in a day or something like that? And he was like, "How do I win the money back?" And I'm like, "Yeah, what?" Like yeah. apparently that's not nothing to worry about. Like you can you can buy super high end financial instruments for however much money you want on margin even. Like you can borrow yeah. money to do this, no problem. Yeah. But if you're a sophisticated investor who understands software and wants some exposure to like non venture B two B SaaS, no, I'm right. sorry, no. The government will tell you that that you know we're going to protect you from
0: that big bogeyman. Yeah. <laughs> like what are I you know. doing? it's crazy. One of the things that I've liked over the years has been first position mortgage debt and it's much safer than sure. many 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 things that you could possibly invest in and even there it's mostly accredited um and uh, yeah it's just I guess I could go on about I'm going to show some colors I guess if I keep talking on that <laughs> but but uh yeah <laughs> talk
1: about I, random stuff and travel it takes some exception I mean it's
0: crazy to me I mean
1: like also the, the way just the random rules that come in like they're starting they 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 changed the uh the rules around crowdfunding you know like there was there was the mm, there was an Obama bill that opened up for retail investors to do crowdfunding hmm. um but the way that those bills were written it meant that really only kind of the weakest firms would go that route because hmm. it was so peculiar And so that's what we're seeing now. So now there are sort of a bunch of like semi scams that go through and ends up being crowdfunded. And and the terms that are coming through are terrible because nobody understands them. And um, then the politicians can look at it and go like, yes, we told you all this, we're protecting you. They're all scams, but it's only because the crap is only the crappiest firms that go through that.
0: route. Yeah, I'm tired of being protected. I'll just take off my
1: helmet right now. Doesn't make any sense. I grew up in I grew up in Norway and spent a bunch of time in the UK, and the rules just aren't the same. There's no such hard threshold. There's no limits like this. Now the EU itself makes it super hard to do, you know, fund investing. We we, we had our European fund that we're just hmm. in the process of closing now, but um, like we ended up and we were like, that's a European fund. It's going to invest mostly in Europe. It makes sense to domicile it in Europe, and and the rules. I mean, if it makes you feel any better the rules for the eu were even were such that it was almost impossible for us to do it so we just gave up it was too expensive like everything had yeah. to be audit. if like a 10 million dollar fund it's like we were going to spend almost all our management fees in like audit compliance with an audit firm anointed by the government in luxembourg or some crap so we just decided to domicile in the us so it's kind yeah. of a it's a poison all over but then i read about these stories in like norwegian newspapers about you know these these people and in norway is a little peculiar because in norway every year they publish the the tax uh tax returns so if you want to figure out how many people how much people money people made or like how much they're worth you just go on the website and put their, put it's their name published everybody's tax returns um, yeah yeah yeah. Uh huh. so you can go wow. put my name in like uh i and, and it'll say zero because i'm no longer a tax resident in norway but anyone yeah. in norway you can put maybe even the king i haven't tried you could put like the name in what they made and how much money they made and it just shows ah. up and so people use this like these scammers use it for like you know random real estate crap like there's been all these things about you know calling some semi you know uh alzheimer patient who's 87 and just took all his money yeah. um and like did some deal where they're like we have this amazing prospect it's 25 million bucks and it turns out it, that's the same thing they bought for two million like two months ago <laughs> You <laughs> clear scams happen all the time. So, yeah. you know, there are some things to investor protections, but, you know, I think the balance is a little off in
0: some cases. For sure. So we're coming up on time, but I just wanted to ask if we're looking out and nobody's got a crystal ball, but if we're looking through this quarter and into next year's, there some part of this that you're particularly excited about or else like particularly worried about in your sphere there?
1: Unlike you, I'm 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 an innate optimist. What is? <laughs> you know, do you so mean? I'm still fully invested in the markets. Unlike yeah. you, that's the difference. That you is. know, so I so I think the markets are going to rip sometime uh, next year. That's what I think. Um, okay. You know, but I I just don't think B two B SaaS is going to be that impacted at the, currently. I I think like the public market SaaS multiples are are hugely uh, uh, deflated at the moment. Yeah, you know, like there's a. Uh, actually did I, I don't know if i told you this i bought sas and i'm going to turn it into like an info product site around well not product ah. but like an info site around public market multiples and that sort okay. of thing uh specifically as it relates to SaaS. but uh, you see the public level SaaS multiples are now like 6x forward-looking revenue which is you know, 21x last year and like, I look at it and I'm like, if I had more money, I, d- I don't, but if I had more money, I would put it in SaaS companies. Cause like the, yeah. the, the, the reduction in their income and their revenue just isn't in any way reflected on their share price. And I think eventually sometime uh, next year, those guys are going to rip again uh, and go up. And I think like on the M and A side, this has truly, truly been uh, a terrible year. Last year we were seeing even for small-ish businesses doing like, you know, four five six seven eight nine ten 10 times are selling to private equity. This year, everyone seems to be sitting on their hands. And the uncertainty means they're not even putting bids in. I think, and I don't actually understand that just to rant a little bit of pri- private equity software guys. On the m a side, I heard, I spent like five years listening to the private equity buy side complaining about the valuations and how expensive things were getting. And then this year when valuations are much more reasonable, nobody's doing anything. I'm like, wait, I thought you guys were all like Warren Buffett fans. Like, aren't yeah. you supposed to like when there's blood on the streets, when other people are fearful, blah, 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 be greedy? No, apparently not. They're all sheep. So they all, they all follow the same thing. So nobody's buying, but yeah. that's gonna change. And I think you know, next year we're gonna be back to where we were, or maybe not quite as crazy as 2021, but back to where it makes sense to, to start transacting. So. Yeah. So in general, I, like I said, I'm an optimist. I think that was a good time to be buying. If you're buying, it's, a, it's not a great time to be selling though.
0: Yeah, agree. Well, that's interesting. You say that because I know obviously a lot of friends with software businesses and it seems like they're all still getting calls from PE. And anyway. everyone's
1: getting calls. I mean, that's nonstop. Like with, I actually have a set up a special email address. I don't know if I told you this. With uh, with the portfolio company. So whenever they, whenever they get inbound, they just forward it to me and I look and I'm like, Oh yeah, these are these kind of buyers just give them feedback on what kind of a buyer this is, whether it's worth a call and stuff. And it, yeah. it it's it's stepped up, but I see the kind of people who are reaching out is more and more of the sort of bottom feeder value buyers who are like, Hey, maybe you wanna sell your, you know, your business for you know, a huge discount.
0: It can't hurt to ask
1: it gets hard to ask and some people are you know they're nervous now and they're like maybe I need to sell because it's going to get even worse but I'm like no just hold on glory's coming
0: so if somebody wants to find you and talk more about the your fund or about uh discretion capital or all that how how would they find you on the web
1: I I'm I'm in a, I don't on Twitter where I'm mostly just complaining about the Giants um or you can go to tinyseedcom slash invest and if you fill out the form on that page they'll come to me and I'll I'll reach out to you and I'm very happy to talk to anybody even though like I said right now uh we're probably six to 12 months out doing another fund uh, we actually also have a syndicate uh which is sort of starting to to ramp up and we're doing sort of one by one deals there which is usually a good way for ah. for new investors to get you know familiar with the kind of deals that we do the kind of things we like to see um, and then, yeah, on the discretion capital side, MA side, discretioncapital.com. Uh, go in there and get in touch.
0: Okay. Well, fantastic. Thanks for coming on, man. And uh, I hope that you and I can get back sure. on here again and talk about some other stuff. always appreciate your opinion, your insight, and you know, you're really tired. We should tied talk about like of
1: completely off the wall. That's what we need to talk about, like investing okay. in watches okay. or like. What random things Einar have seen on Reddit in the last like six months? That'd be good.
0: Well, I actually, I know nothing about watches. Maybe we should do an episode. You can come on here and talk to me about watches. I remember in the spring, I saw somebody on Twitter and they are like, I'm 23 and I've invested all of my money into Bitcoin and watches. And I was like, "Watches? Yeah. yeah. I'm it's set huge. For life. I mean, honestly, that
1: I way. could talk about it for, I'm sort of into watches. I have too many watches, but. But yeah no it's been particularly crazy particularly the combination of like the crypto mania you know the bitcoin going up and stuff is very closely correlated mm. with like people buying people like the joke tends to be like you made your money in bitcoin you're buying lambos but m- most yeah. of the time i think it's morally more reflected in like prices for like you know rolex submariners and things like that than it is anything else but yeah price has definitely gone up like It's coming down now, but for a while, if you could get a, a, say a Rolex at retail, you pay $9,000 or something. You could turn around and sell it the next day for like 20,000 until people were spending all their time, like trying to make friends with these Rolex dealers to, to to be like, Hey, sell this watch to me. I mean, some of them are completely insane. You know, there's a, there's one, which is, um, uh, I think it's a Patek Philippe. It's like a, it's like a Tiffany blue dial. I don't know. Anyway, it retails for 40,000 bucks. Um, do you want to, do you want to guess how much it trades for in the, uh, in the, sort of the gray market, secondhand market, $3.3 million,
0: What? point three million <laughs> $3. <laughs> million. $3. $3. <laughs> That's wild. That's crazy. Well, we will, we will have to have you come back on here and talk about then. Because, none of that makes any sense to me. Although I, I have to say that I am bullish on luxury goods. I don't think anybody who can buy for you thousand dollar watch is really going to care about whatever's happening today unless they're leveraged it's awesome having you you. thanks for coming on man and uh if you want to find uh you find our anr volset on twitter or go to tinyseed.com thanks